So recently I was reading through the book of Revelations and, and I guess I hadn't read uh, the book for quite a long time. And as I read through the letters to the churches, the seven churches in chapters two and three, I certainly felt that there was a lot of application from those letters for us as a, a local church, but also for us as individuals. And as I was reading through the letters, um, I, I felt perhaps particularly, I'm not going to try to talk about all seven letters tonight, but I do want to pay attention to the last of those. That is the, the letter to the church in Laodicea. And as I was considering these letters, I guess, in the general, there um, seem to be a variety of ways that we can apply the lessons from these uh, to us. I think there's general agreement that the letters were written to seven actual churches that existed in Asia Minor in the first century. And as we read through them, I guess, first of all, it gives us a bit of a uh, a look into what issues were uh, in churches back in that day and age. And so, uh, and then secondly, um, we can see that many of these issues as we read through, through the letters have certainly come up in churches, you know, back in previous centuries, but also in the world today. So, I think they are helpful in providing, I guess, a warning rod to us in terms of our own local church and in terms of our own our own uh, walk with the Lord, uh, because I think they can be applied, as I said, both uh, as a corporate church, but also uh, on a personal level. And I think that's sort of the third real reason. We see the various failings that are pointed out and also the various commendations that are made in these letters and, and we can listen and learn from each of those as we go through. So these letters I think are certainly very relevant for us. And a lot of people, as I read the literature, feel that those letters are, are or speak to sort of the chronology of church history. So each letter sort of speaks to the church uh, in a specific period of time through history. And I'm not dogmatic about that, but as I read that, it did seem to make some sense as, as you walk through the history of, of the church. We see some of these problems that uh, sprung up in, in, in various centuries uh, through the history of the church. And if, if we agree with that, then the Laodicean church is the church that would really apply to us in this day and age. And so, again, another reason to consider it tonight. So before we get into the actual letter to the church in Laodicea, I wanted to review a couple of things. Uh, so in the first chapter of John, we read where the glorified Christ, he sees a vision of the glorified Christ standing among seven golden lampstands, and he has the seven stars in his hand. And in verse 20 of chapter 1, we get an explanation of this. 
and it says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So it's very clear that the lampstands uh, speak for are the seven churches there. They represent the seven churches, but the meaning of the angels is perhaps more in question. And it's interesting, different people have different thoughts on it, but the Greek word angelos uh, simply means messenger. And so as we consider, because each of the letters begin with to the, to the angel of the church, and so some people perhaps think that this is um, applying to some supernatural angel as we might think of, but the meaning of the word simply means messenger. And in fact, in various places in the New Testament, that same word that's used there is used for people just uh, like you and I, you know, for instance, John the Baptist, he is called an angelos. So he was not an angel in the sense that we might normally think of, but was simply a messenger. So, you know, there's, again, different thoughts. Some people think that a messenger was sent from each of those churches to the island of Patmos to get this message that John had been given through a vision from the Lord and took it back to the church. And others think simply it was one of the elders or pastors of that church who were given that message and were to then uh, bring that message forth to their local assembly. Anyhow, I, I don't think it matters too much other than we know that these messages were specifically called to be brought to these churches that actually existed at the time and were very important. The Lord had given John these visions, uh, this vision with these specific messages so that they were written out and were brought to the churches. So I think you probably all turn there, but we will read through uh, Revelations 3, verses 14 to 22. I'll read through. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shamefulness, uh, shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So 
So the structure of all seven letters is extremely similar. And we haven't read the other ones, but as you'd see in this letter, there's a, uh, basically an identical salutation at the beginning. And then the Lord Jesus is presented in a specific role. And I guess a role that would be relevant to that church. The statement, I know your deeds, is spoken to each of the churches after, right at the beginning of the letter. Then there's a word of commendation in most cases, except for in the case of Laodicea, where there was no commendation given. Then words of correction. In some cases, uh, well, to Smyrna and Philadelphia, there were no words of correction. And then there is an exhortation to listen to what the Spirit is saying. And then a specific promise is given for the overcomer at the end. So we'll just work our way through the, the letter here now. Um, so to the angel of the church in Laodicea. So again, the messenger was to bring this letter to the congregation. Excuse me. These are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So here, these are the words of Jesus Christ, and it's saying specifically, he's the amen. So Jesus Christ is the embodiment of truth, and he's completely trustworthy. And he's trustworthy to bring to fruition whatever God intends to come to fruition. It also says that he's the ruler of God's creation. And he's not only the ruler, we know, but he's also the, the creator. And, and that comes out in other versions of uh, that sense. So right from the start, these words that are going to be spoken are trustworthy and true. And really, because they come from the, man, the one who has created us and who rules over all creation. We can count on these words that are spoken. Next, the Lord tells the church that it knows its deeds. As I said, that's said in each case. And if we think about that for a minute, I think we know that intellectually. God knows our deeds. But it's a bit of a, a sobering thought when we think that every one of our deeds, and I think, more than just knowing the, the deeds, but he knows the intentions of our heart, the motives behind the deeds, and all those things that um, we may or may not uh, necessarily think about on a daily basis. But this is being brought forth very clearly. He wants them to understand and be reminded of this. And to the extent I think we know and understand this on a daily basis, it's going to be life-changing for us. So after he says he knows their deeds, there's sort of five specific criticisms that are leveled at the church. But I'm just going to briefly talk a bit about some, I think, important aspects of that historical city at the time because they, in a sense, um, are brought out within these criticisms and are used so that the people of Laodicea would probably better understand what is being said. 
So the first thing is Laodicea was a very busy uh, city. Uh, it was, the, I think, the capital of Phrygia province in Asia Minor. It was st strategically located at the um, confluence or the uh, joining of three different highways. And it, it was a wealthy city. It was known to be very wealthy. Um, I think the story is said that uh, there was um, an earthquake which pretty much destroyed the city and Rome was willing to help pay for it to be fixed up, but they refused the money because they had plenty of money themselves. So um, that's certainly said, and one of the historians uh, speaks of that. It was a city that was well known for textiles. It was fam famous for a specific black wool that was worn, wo woven into uh, garments that were um, highly prized all over the Roman Empire. And so the city was, I guess, a well-dressed city, we might say. It, was, it had a world-renowned medical school, which was famous for an eye salve that, uh, called Phrygian powder. And people traveled apparently from all over the world to receive eye treatment in Laodicea. And then, although the city was well located on a trading route, apparently there was no good source of water. The city was located there because it was on the trading route, but there was no good source of water right at, at that spot. So it was piped in uh, over a distance of about 10 kilometers. And the water that did came in was usually quite warm when it arrived there. And it had a lot of minerals and, and was known to be poor, uh, did not taste good. So anyhow, these are historical facts about the city. So the first thing that is said about the Laodiceans is that they were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. <clears throat> there seemed to be um, no particular good work that they were doing because there would have been a commendation beforehand. And I would suggest that there's different people think different things about the Laodicean church. I, I've read some people who felt that there were absolutely no Christians in the Laodicean church, that it was an apostate church, uh, unbelieving, and that they just had a, some religion, but there was there were no believers. And then others feel that it was just a backslidden church that uh, had were no longer had Christ as the center of the church and were not doing much in any way for the Lord for various reasons. And I'll maybe point some of these out as we're going. I think there had to be some true believers there. As we get towards the end of the text, there's reasons to think that. And there were probably many who were just Christians. Uh, in uh, perhaps uh, name, but they were not true believers. They didn't know Christ as their personal savior. Um, and I would suggest that that might be true simply because of the fact that um, there was obviously a lack of good deeds within the church and the reaction to the lukewarmness. I mean, the Lord literally wanted to, to vomit them out of his mouth. And you know, I, I was thinking of the example of many of us might have seen a nice piece of fruit and uh, it looked good, but bitten into it and the automatic reaction when it's you taste the 
the awful taste is to spit it out. And I think of that when I think of the Laodicean church where it might've looked good on the outside, had some appearance uh, of goodness, but deep inside there was just a lack of anything good. And the Lord's reaction is pretty strong and towards this. Well, what do we know about the attitude of the Laodicean church? So there are a number of statements that are made. I think five, no, three, sorry. The first one is, it says that I am rich. So as we talked about, they, they were probably a very wealthy church from a material perspective. They were, I think, trusting in their riches and trusting in those riches for all that they had and needed uh, for their security and their happiness. Um, and so from a material perspective, they realized they were rich and that's where they felt that, um, and, they, and they lived in that material richness. And that's what it says. They, in their hearts and minds, they felt that they were rich. And that would be from a material perspective. It says, I have acquired wealth. So again, from their perspective, they obviously felt that everything that they had attained was of their own doing. They had the sense that they didn't, um, that nothing that they had necessarily came from the Lord, but that they had worked hard, that they deserved it, and that it was theirs and that that is how they were secure and happy in their lives there and finally i do not need a thing so again that was their perspective that they were not in need of any uh anything spiritually perhaps um they were self-sufficient they didn't need to depend on the lord for anything and certainly the lord was not first in their life it seemed like their attainment of riches was what they were after. And they were completely secure in their own talents, their own abilities, their own resources, and I guess financial wealth. So clearly the happiness and joy found in the Laodiceans was something that I think gave them great pride. They obviously were very proud of this and they had no realization that from a spiritual standpoint they were really completely bankrupt so as as we get down to let's see the verse but it says i think halfway verse through verse 17 it says but you do not realize you do not realize. And then he goes on to say what their actual state was. And it's interesting to think about that statement. They were completely um, unaware of their bankruptcy. They felt that they had everything. They felt that they had everything going for them. And yet the Lord is coming down and making things very clear that from the point of the real 
uh, point of wealth. They had nothing. And so they're given this wake-up call. So the first thing that is said about them is that they're wretched. And we certainly know what wretched means, but one of the notes that I read was that the word wretched, the Greek word, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it has it has two distinct words that make up the word wretched, and it means to bear calluses. And the suggestion is, is that this church bore calluses on its heart, and those calluses pre prevented the Lord and the Holy Spirit from... Um, well, their, their, their hearts were hard towards the Lord as a result of this, these, their calloused hearts. And the, and the calloused hearts prevented them from understanding, really, their precarious spiritual position, I guess. The next word uh, used to describe them is that they're pitiful. And we certainly have an understanding of that meaning. But I think, as I think of the Laodiceans, they were pitiful in a, in a sense of a, a drunk person, perhaps, who was completely inebriated out in a cold snowbank, lying there and not aware of their precarious position. Um, they are in threat of uh, dying from the cold, uh, just as these Laodiceans were in, in grave spiritual danger, but they are so inebriated with their wealth that they had no concept of what was going on in their lives and, and in their spiritual condition. Next, it says they were blind, and obviously they were without spiritual insight or discernment. They, as we said, had this wonderful medical school that was very good at healing eyes physically, but here they were in a, in a, a spiritual situation of complete blindness. And really, that was, a, I think, the heart of the problem, that they were spiritually blind. Some of them didn't know the Lord at all, and others had been blinded by the things of the world and all that had taken them away from the Lord and to the understanding of God's word and really to the eternal perspective that we should have as Christians. Then finally, the Laodiceans were naked. They were certainly rich in terms of their physical adornment. They probably were well-dressed people um, because of where they were from and their wealth, but they were completely naked spiritually. Certainly those who are not true believers, uh, we know don't, don't possess the righteousness of Christ. And, you know, as the Bible says, even our... Our, our de any of our good deeds are really filthy rags before the Lord. Um, and for even the believers, without the fruits of the Spirit in their lives, again, they're really, we're naked and we're living hypocritical Christian lives. So as we can see, the church was in bad shape. And so the next word spoken here is that there is counsel given, there's advice given, and there's advice set forth for the church. And it's interesting. Uh, the Lord says here, um, 
So yeah, in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. And it's interesting, he uses the word buy from me. And I don't think he, I think we know that uh, we don't buy things from the Lord. But again, I think it is you, that word is used simply because it was a culture that was used to attaining things through purchasing. And he was just basically saying that the Lord is the only one that you can acquire or gain these things that you really need from. Uh, they were certainly used to buying happiness through all kinds of other things, but he's saying, I'm the only source. I'm the only source for things that will bring you true happiness, spiritual wealth uh, that can only be received by faith. And it's also to note, again, the source is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one and that they can buy gold uh, from the most valuable uh, substance from him. And uh, it certainly pictures um, in the scripture, gold is uh, sort of a picture of faith and faith is produced by God's own word and through which men bring their, you know, they bring the spiritual riches of Christ into their lives through that, through, through faith in him. And then it next says, uh, and and to, this is to become rich and white clothes to wear. So again, white clothes or raiments. Um, so in the case of unbelievers, speaking to unbelievers, if this is spoken to unbelievers, which I'm sure there were many, the only way for uh, the unbeliever to have white and clean raiments is through the right righteousness that Jesus Christ offers and is imputed to us through faith in him. And certainly from the standpoint of the believers, it would speak of you know, the, the fruits of the spirit that we have through uh, an indwelling and in, in regular relationship, indwelling of the Holy Spirit and regular relationship with him, uh, with him helping us walk in, in acts of, uh, in the fruits of the spirit. And then finally, solve to put on your eyes. And again, he uses that example, speaking of their understanding of the need for solve, for eyes to be, be, be able to see again, to cure issues with eyesight. But speaking of spiritual sight, they needed spiritual sight. And certainly we know the, the verse in scripture where it says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And here, um, the Lord is saying that you need my word to light your path, that your path that you're traveling on is uh, you're, you're, you're stumbling around in, in, in the darkness. And it's only through the word of God that we can have light shed onto our paths. He's urging them to read, read his word and also apply it. So next, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And I think this is, and other people that I read about on this passage would suggest that there had to be believers there because that, um, the word used for love in this case, is only used for believers in the New Testament. 
and the Lord rebukes those he loves and dis disciplines them. We read that in Hebrews in, uh, 12, I think it is. And so he is saying to them that if you don't start doing some of these things, then discipline will be coming because I love you. I know you're mine. I love you, but I need to uh, bring correction into your life. And so he's saying that to those who I think are believers within that church. And that's where I, I think there certainly were some believers there. Now, towards the end, he again says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So here a wonderful invitation from the Lord. And I think that invitation could be to both unbelievers and believers, to the unbeliever. It's for them to come in and receive eternal life through faith in him. And for those who have been negligent in their relationship with the Lord, again, he wants to eat and sup with them and enjoy close fellowship. So there's a plea from him. He's standing, he's patient. And I think the standing speaks to his patience in a church like this. It certainly wouldn't be easy to be patient, patient by the sound of the church. And he's knocking, he's, he's actually actively out there knocking, wanting them to listen. And then he's actually, he's not just knocking, he's speaking. If anyone hears my voice. So he's actively reaching out to them and he wants them to know this. He wants them, he's, he's inviting them and wants them to respond. And then it says, I will dine with them and uh, they with me. And again, the idea that he's got this beautiful table set with so much to offer. And there they are eating off the sort of meager um, enjoyment that they are getting from the physical and the material things that they have. But there's a wonderful table set before them that they can come in and dine and enjoy sweet fellowship with the Lord. And then right at the end of the, the chapter, verse 21, I think it is. It says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So again, there's a, an, an invitation. And this idea of overcoming is... I think in every one of the seven letters. And so this is an invitation again to, to believers. And there's a promise that if they overcome, they'll have the privilege of sitting with Christ on his throne, both I think in the uh, sharing authority with the Lord in the millennial and eternal kingdoms. And it's interesting. He says, as I also overcame and sat down and we know that the real victory is uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's only through his power that we can overcome. So he did overcome so that we can overcome. And I think it's very important for us to realize that, that he's done the work. And as we 
rest in him and walk with him, he will help us overcome in the way that he wants us to. And then it, the letter concludes, whoever has ears, let them hear. And so again, not just speaking of hearing audibly, obviously, but he's wanting us to hear, understand, and act. And so he was speaking those words to them 2,000 years ago, and, and those words, same words ring out to us here tonight. And you know, I'm going a little bit over time, so just maybe go through a, a few concluding thoughts. You know, when I first read this, I had the, my thought was, what a terrible church. Um, shame on them. And uh, I did not necessarily think of how it applied to my life, applied to Rito View, perhaps. And I don't think that was a healthy thing. But as I spent time in it, uh, it's easy to be lukewarm. I know that in my own life. I'm sure some of you can relate. And even as a church, it's easy to be lukewarm towards things of the Lord. It's easy to be distracted by all the various things that this world has to offer. So many different things, whether it's garments that, garments that we want to wear, wealth, all kinds of things. And it's very easy to be like the Laodicean, Laodiceans, um, feeling comfortable in the things that we have and perhaps we feel that we've attained. So I just wrote down five questions that I was asking myself and I thought I'd just put them out there. Do I necessarily believe and act as though everything I have comes from the hand of God? Or do I feel that things that I own are a result of my own doing and are for me to use as I see fit? Secondly, if I were to suffer circumstances, such as someone like Job in the Old Testament, losing all of my material possessions and many of my close families, would I still be content and satisfied in the richness of my spiritual abundance in Christ? Thirdly, when my works are tested, as 1 Corinthians 3 would suggest, will they be burned up because they are not done, perhaps with the right motives? Fourthly, am I deriving my satisfaction in life from the crumbs that this world, world has to offer, that is, the material blessings I have, or am I living in the bounty that I have through a close walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, eating and drinking with him daily? And then fifthly, am I using the word of God to light my path each day, or am I spiritually blind, following my own desires day to day? Certainly the Laodicean church was lukewarm. Am I? Are you? We have seen what it means to be lukewarm and how we have, are to deal with lukewarmness. We have also seen the Lord's reaction to lukewarmness. He clearly hates it and wants to spew it out of his mouth. Those are pretty strong words. Do we have ears to hear this message as the Lord challenges us in this passage? Or are we blind to the effects of our own forms of greed? Since his witness is true, as we read at the beginning, and he is the amen or the final word, it would be foolish of us not to listen and consider these things for ourselves.
Thank you.